Well, what a um, fantastic time of reflection that was, just thinking about the questions that Jesus is asking us. I, I think there's a question that um, Jesus has been asking me lately, and that question is, um, how come you haven't gone to see Star Wars yet? Uh, <laughs> would be the, I think, the big accountability that Jesus <laughs> is holding me to right now. No, I haven't. I haven't seen the movie yet. I've uh, I've heard from basically everybody that it's amazing and that I've got to go see it. And what I know, I know I do. I know I've watched all the other ones. I love it. I just haven't gone to see it yet. And everybody's said to me the same thing since you know they've seen the movie. You know, the whole thing is okay d- until you see the movie. Stay away from the internet, which is like, right, no problem. Who goes on to the internet every day? Um, so I've been doing my best to avoid the internet. To, I don't know the surprises, the twists or whatever, and I'm quite content that way. Um, but the one thing I did go and research about Star Wars, or an article that I read, had to do with... Um, People pointing out or talking about the ways in which J.J. Abrams, in making this most recent movie, kind of fills the story with homages to the earlier films, to the earlier stories, which I thought was really cool. I saw a video that was pointing out stuff in the background, visuals and so on, all the way through the movie that referenced earlier episodes in the Star Wars franchise and so on. And I thought that was amazing that he would... um, make this movie in a way that kind of embeds itself, consciously embeds itself in the whole sequence of story. It says we are a part of the story um, that's being told in that way. Of course, the only critic that I've heard of uh, of this particular approach was George Lucas, um, ironically enough, makes three terrible Star Wars movies and then criticizes the next one. But um, George Lucas said, you know, whenever I made a new Star Wars movie, it was always about the future. It was about moving forward. It wasn't about doing something retro and referencing the past or whatever. But I, I don't know. I think J.J. I think, um, Abrams was on to something. That if you're going to understand the story that you're experiencing in the moment, that really the only way to understand the story is to understand how it is a part of all the other stories that have come before. You have to be able to see the story in light of where it fits in the story. And once you can situate it that way, you understand it at a whole different level. And this morning as we turn to to Matthew chapter 14 and 15, because we're looking at two stories again this morning. Matthew 14 and 15, we're going to look at two stories and we're going to try to take a step back and see the way Matthew has told his story in a way that embeds it in the larger story being told by the scriptures that go all the way back to the beginnings of the Jewish scriptures and so on. Um, it's the only way I can understand. We're, we're going to look at two, two stories um, of two nearly identical incidents in Jesus' life. Told by Matthew in two nearly identical ways. It's, it's like and a chapter and a half apart. They're almost right beside each other. It's one of these things that causes scholars to scratch their head and say, why would you tell the same story, essentially? Um, why would you tell the same story two times, pretty much back to back? And, and as I've been studying this passage in preparation for the series, my sense is this. Matthew tells these two stories 
Because these two stories in some way are a pair of bookends. He tells the one at the beginning of this passage that we're looking at over these six weeks. He tells the other at the end. It's how he opens and how he closes this entire passage of scripture that has to do with who Jesus is. And I think the only way we understand what Matthew is saying about who he understands Jesus to be is to look at both of these bookend stories together. Like I say, they're nearly identical stories. In, the, in both stories, it begins with Jesus leaving the place where he was and going into a more remote location where he's hoping to be alone, but he ends up being followed by enormous crowds of people. In the one instance, uh, 5,000 men plus women and children. In, in the other instance, 4,000 men plus women and children. So if you think about it, if every man roughly on average has a woman and the two of them have a kid or two, what are we talking about? Maybe a crowd of fifteen or 20,000 in the first story? A crowd of 12 or, or 16,000 people in the, in the second story. Just enormous crowds that follow Jesus. And each time the text says that Jesus has compassion on the crowds and he begins to heal their sicknesses and their uh, diseases. And then this moment occurs in both stories. I'm going to read this out of Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 15. It says, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. In the other story, they say, we have only seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. Which, by the way, bread topped with dried fish would have been the, the staple meal of a first century Jewish peasant. But so all we have is this tiny little bit of food. And in both stories, Jesus gets the, the crowds to sit. And he takes the food and he looks to heaven and he prays a blessing over it and then he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples to begin to hand out to the crowds and they hand it out and they hand it out and it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies until everyone in both stories, until all 20,000 people in the one story, all 16,000 people in the other story have all eaten and are full. And not only eaten until they're full, but the disciples go and they collect baskets and baskets and baskets of leftovers. Enough food left over to, to feed a whole other army of people. It's this incredibly simple, incredibly profound, incredibly powerful story of Jesus who has the power and the ability and the compassion to supply for people whatever it is they need beyond their wildest imagination until they have, uh, until they have received and are filled and there is an abundance left over. But I think there's more to these stories than just that. 
I think Matthew has told these stories like J.J. Abrams in a way where embedded in the stories are echoes of, of older stories that he's hoping his Jewish Christian audience will hear in the way he tells the story so that they will, they'll hear the echo of these older stories and it'll help them understand what Matthew's trying to say about who Jesus is. i give you an example. The first echo I think Matthew is hoping that his readers hear. This is not the first story in the Jewish scriptures of a prophet who had the miraculous power to feed people beyond the supply of food that he had access to. 800 years before Jesus was even born, there was a prophet in ancient, ancient Israel by the name of Elisha. Now, Elisha was a man, if you go and read the stories in the book of 2 Kings, Elisha was a man who had incredible miraculous power and one of the things there are several stories about Elisha that he was somebody who was able to provide food for people beyond what they needed out of very meager resources and one of these stories I think is particularly important to what Matthew was doing in this passage these passages we're looking at today in 2nd Kings chapter 4 it says this a man came from Baal Shalisha bringing the man of God, Elisha, 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. Uh, This man, there's a famine in Gilgal where Elisha is living and um, this man who apparently still has some resources, some means, this man comes to Elisha with a donation in hand. He wants to support Elisha's ministry and so he brings him these 20 barley loaves that he has baked and essentially you eat um, eat a loaf of bread for every meal. This was really a week's worth of food especially in famine time probably more than a week's worth of food that he was bringing to Elisha in effect saying listen I know that you don't have much here you know my wife baked these for you um Use these during the coming days. He filled Elisha's fridge in a really hard time in his life. But Elisha looks at the man and he says, I don't want the food. He says, give it to the people to eat. It says in verse 43, how can I set this, just 20 loaves, how can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Elisha is this prophet. I mean, you can hear now the echoes of the stories that Matthew is telling. You can hear the echoes of Elisha. The prophet, I think Jesus or Matthew is telling the story in such a way as to make his readers think back to Elisha and realize that what Matthew was saying first and foremost about Jesus is that Jesus is a prophet like Elisha. 
which is an incredible thing for Matthew to say. Elisha was one of the most, if not the most, powerful prophet in terms of working miraculous signs and so on. He was one of the most powerful prophets in ancient Israel. Now, a prophet, by the way, is just the title that ancient Israelites gave to the spiritual leaders in their community, the people who became for them the representatives of God, the men and women who would speak God's truth to the people. The men and women who would help discern God's will for the people. The men and women who became important government officials, even advisors to kings, because they were the ones who understood what God wanted from the people, what God wanted for the people, and they were responsible to help guide the people in the way that God was laying out for them. And and among all the prophets in ancient Israel, Elisha himself was probably the most powerful in terms of the power of God flowing through him to work miracles. In fact, the scriptures say that Elisha was twice as powerful, twice as wise, twice the leader that his mentor, a more famous prophet named Elijah, than than his mentor was. And yet, in this story, this person brings Elisha 20 loaves of bread and Elisha uses it to feed 100 people. You hear what Matthew's doing? Matthew's saying Jesus is a prophet kind of like Elisha, except where Elisha fed 100 people with 20 loaves, Jesus fed 200 times as many people with the quarter of the food available. I mean, mathematically, I guess what Matthew's saying is Jesus is a thousand times the prophet that Elisha ever was. The most powerful prophet in Israel's history. Matthew, in telling the story the way he does with echoes of Elisha in the background, what Matthew wants us to realize is that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the ultimate representative of God, the one who a thousand times more than anyone else spoke the truth about God and about us and about life more than anyone else discerned the will of God for his people who a thousand times more than anyone else is able to guide and lead his people in the way that God has laid out for them. Jesus is a prophet, is a representative of God, is God's final and ultimate spokesperson in the world, unparalleled and unrivaled in human history. Second echo. Because uh, um, thinking about prophets, Elisha might have been the most powerful prophet in Israel's history, but Elisha was not the most important prophet in Israel's history. That distinction would have to go to Moses. Moses was the first real prophet in Israel's history and was, in fact, the the founding father of the nation of Israel. It was under Moses' divinely appointed and empowered leadership that God rescued the nation of Israel from captivity, from slavery um, that had lasted 450 years in the, in the nation of Egypt. God, under Moses' leadership, rescues Israel and leads them out of Egypt and sets them free to become the people God had always hoped they would be. It was under Moses' Leadership that he guided them into the wilderness and then went up on a mountain called Sinai and received from God 
God's law for the people. The law of Moses, the Jews called it. It was the constitutional document that became foundational to their existence as a people. It was what laid out um, what God wanted from them in terms of their relationship with God and in terms of their relationship with each other and their place in the world. This, um, the law of Moses was the basis of their entire national and religious life. In fact, the, the first five books of the Jewish scriptures come from Moses. Moses was the one who led and guided the people for 40 years as they wandered as nomads in the Sinai Peninsula, just east of Egypt, and brought them after 40 years to the border of the land of Palestine, which they believed that God had promised that they would occupy for all of eternity, the place where God said he was going to give them a new life. It was Moses who had done that. And for the 40 years that they wandered in the desert, for 40 years under the leadership of Moses, God fed the Israelites in the wilderness every single day with miraculous bread from heaven called manna. Every morning when the Jewish people in the wilderness woke up and came out of their tents as the dew evaporated, there was left behind flakes of this manna left on the ground. And they could use it in a sense kind of like we use oats. You know, you could grind it up and make it a flour that you could bake with or um, you could boil it in water and turn it into a porridge. This was what they ate for 40 Years in the wilderness. This miraculous bread that fed them in the desert for 40 years. Now maybe you can hear the echo of the story of Moses in what Matthew is saying about Jesus. Matthew has actually made comparing Moses to Jesus kind of a project of his. We haven't really talked about this in our series uh, through the book of Matthew, but for the first seven chapters, at some level, those seven chapters are almost a sustained comparison between Jesus as Moses, something that, um, something that Matthew has been interested in communicating all the way through this book is that in his opinion, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus, in fact, is Moses 2.0. Jesus is the Moses for this generation who is going to rescue the people from slavery in a brand new kind of way, not from physical captivity, you know, being held in, in um slavery by another nation, but he's going to lead them, set them free from their spiritual captivity to evil and sin. He's going to set them free from their captivity to pain and brokenness. That Jesus is going to be the one who leads people um, stuck 
and trapped in the ruts of their lives, he's going to be the one who leads them out into freedom and helps them become the community of people that God had always dreamed that people would be. Jesus is going to be the Moses who truly sets people free. The one who has the ability to guide and to lead and to feed and supply and nourish and sustain on the journey from captivity to freedom. That's who Jesus is. Not just any prophet, not just a prophet a thousand times you know, as significant as Elisha, but the prophet who leads people from slavery to sin into the freedom of the life that God had always envisioned. And what does that life look like? There's another echo in the text. Matthew chapter 15, starting verse 29, this is the other The second telling of the story, this is the beginning of it. It says, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. And then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And great crowds came to him, bringing the lame and the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking. And the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. These kinds of verses, if you've been studying with us in the book of Matthew, they they almost become commonplace. You know, and Jesus went to this place and they brought all the sick and he healed all the sick and the broken and and so on. You come across these verses all the time in the portions that we've studied. In fact, I think I counted that this is either the fifth or the sixth time you kind of get one of these little summaries that talks about how Jesus just healed everybody that got brought to him. It's, It's almost become, for Matthew, like a like a little bit of a placeholder whenever he wants to transition from one story to the next. He just drops in a sentence about how Jesus was healing people. and I, You almost get to the point where you start to brush over the, the stories. Except this one. I think Matthew has, has written these verses in a very particular way because he wants us to hear the echo of another Old Testament prophet. A prophet by the name of Isaiah. In verse 35, verse 5, it says this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. You have this passage where where Matthew is describing all of the kinds of healings that Isaiah is prophesying 800 years before Jesus. Isaiah is saying there is a time coming when God is going to intervene in human history. When God is going to step into the world and he's going to root out of the world all the sin, all of the evil that is within us and around us. He's going to root out of the world all the pain and the brokenness and he's going to recreate all of creation. He's going to transform Transform the world into the kind of place that he always wanted it to be. He's going to set the world free to become a place that is filled with his presence and love. And here you have 
Isaiah describing exactly what some of this um, freedom, what some of this activity of God is going to look like. God is going to begin to heal the brokenness in people's lives. But as you read the rest of the chapter, he says, you know, the desert is going to burst into bloom. The barren places are going to flood with abundance. Peace and safety will descend on creation. People will find their lives transformed. Holiness will burst out of people's lives. Wholeness will descend on their being. And they will gather together. The passage closes by saying they will gather together on a mountain in the presence of God and they will feast and they will celebrate and joy and gladness will overwhelm the sorrow and the sighing that had been characteristic of their lives. And it will last, Isaiah says, for all of eternity. The human beings live together in community with each other in the presence of God being made holy, in their character being made whole, in their personhood, feasting and celebrating with joy and gladness the life they live in the presence of God. This, Matthew says, is who Jesus is. He is the unparalleled, incomparable representative of God. God's spokesman who speaks God's truth and who discerns God's will and who guides us in God's way. He is God's representative who's going to lead us out of slavery to sin and to evil within us and around us to set us free from the ugliness of the choices that we don't want to make but sometimes still do. The ugliness of the people that we don't want to be but we sometimes still are. He's going to lead us out of the slavery, being enslaved to the pain and brokenness of our lives. He's going to bring healing into the hurting. He's going to bring wholeness into the brokenness. He's going to set us free so that our lives don't have to be dictated by the sadness and the fear and the guilt and the shame that all of us grapple with from time to time. He's going to set us free to live lives of peace where we're at peace with ourselves and peace with each other and peace with life and at peace with God. And he's going to guide us into this new life. This recreated life where we live in his presence for all of eternity. When, when Isaiah talks about what this new life is like, he, the three words that seem to come up are healing like we've just talked about. But gathering. That God is going to draw people who are far from him and far from each other. He's going to draw them together into a community where they live together in loving relationship. Open to God and open to each other. Being family together in the presence of God where they will celebrate. That's the third word. Where they will celebrate for all of eternity. You know the most common metaphor to describe what eternity will be like in the Bible is the dancing and singing and joy and feasting of a, of, a, of a wedding reception. The idea that 
God and his people will finally be joined together in love to live in each other's presence for all of eternity. And it hasn't happened yet. It's not happened fully now, but it is happening in our midst because of Jesus. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's why Matthew tells about these healings. He says it's not done, it's not finished, it's not over. He hasn't done it all, but it's happening right in front of your eyes. It's happening among you as we speak. You get to experience the beginnings of it even now. If eternity with God is a wedding reception, then I guess all of life is a rehearsal party where we celebrate together the being together in the presence of God in the anticipation of the full realization of what we've begun to enjoy now. That's who Jesus is. And how does he do this in our lives? Well, there's there's one more echo. It's not from... Um, Israel's past, it's from Jesus' future. And uh, it starts in verse 36 in Matthew chapter 15. It says, then he took the seven loaves of fish and when he had given them, he broke, broke them and gave them to the disciples and they in turn to the people. Jesus uh, took the food, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. In Matthew 26, Matthew tells the story of the last time Jesus shared a meal with his disciples, and this is what he says. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. It's in the celebration. Uh, Whenever we gather together to take communion, what we are celebrating, we're remembering what Jesus has done for us. We're remembering this moment of celebration with his disciples. We're remembering that Jesus is the prophet who has come to set us free. That he took our sin in himself as he went to the cross. That he, um, in being broken for us, becomes the agent of our healing as he hung there alone, abandoned by everyone. He joins us together in community and by his death, he invites us to experience life. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, as we're going to do this morning, every time we take the bread and break it and give thanks and eat it, we're remembering the life, the feast, the celebration, the joy and the gladness that God has invited us into because of Jesus. In a sense, whenever we gather as we are this morning to take communion together we are enjoying the hors d'oeuvres of the heavenly feast that we're going to participate together with each other in the presence of God for all eternity as those who have been made holy 
and whole. And have been set free to be the people that God always dreamed that we would be. So this morning as you come to celebrate communion with us. Come and celebrate communion with us. Celebrate who Jesus is and celebrate what Jesus has done and celebrate what that means for your life in the ways that Jesus is setting you free. Let's pray together. Father, we come knowing that we need Jesus. We come thanking you for your son who's come as the one to lead us out of slavery to sin, out of slavery to our brokenness, and to set us free as individuals and as a community to be the people you've always envisioned that we would be, to invite us to live together as community in the celebration of your presence. May we come this morning, Father, and celebrate the love and the goodness you poured out on us in the person of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.